E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Author and importer Michael Garner on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi. Yeah, I'm good. You? Very nice to see you. Thank you very much. So these days you run Trio Wines, which is an importer of Italian wines from North and Central Italy into the UK. That's absolutely correct. And then in 1990, you wrote a book called Barolo Tar and Roses. I certainly did, yes. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Yeah, sir. that's the one. That's me. <laughs> that Michael Garner. And then uh, you, in the future, have a book coming out on Amarone and the fine wines of Verona. That's correct. That should be published at the end of the year, all being well. I'm on track with the words at the moment, so... I'm feeling pretty good about it. You're on deadline? Yeah, yeah. I'm on schedule. I, I've sort of worked it out. I've got a target of 90,000 words. I've done just over 60,000. So even a, a bear of little, little mathematical brain like myself knows that in the next five months, I've got to write 6,000 words per month, and I'm there. So where'd you grow up originally? I grew up in a place called Stockport, which you'll never have heard of, which is a small suburb of Manchester in the northwest of England. Um, well, everyone's heard of Manchester. Because of the soccer teams? and the... Uh, the football team, as we like to call it. Right, yeah, right, right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. I really find it hard to bring myself to say soccer is football for us. Did you know Jane Anson when you were kids or anything? Because she's Ooh. also, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, she <laughs> yeah, writes for the kids. Yeah, okay. yes, only teasing, yeah. I, is she from Manchester? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah, I did the same joke to her, and she also did the same thing. She's like, oh, it's well, not soccer. Okay, yeah. did she? Yeah, well, she comes from Manchester, so she, she's been brought up in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> so you were originally in a big wine family, and you knew immediately that you wanted to be a wine writer. No, um, my... Uh, my family background, great as it is, did, just didn't involve wine. If we saw wine once a year, it was probably a bottle of Asti Spumante on, at Christmas time or on my dad's birthday or something like that. Um, so I grew up without any wine background at all. And in fact, I didn't know the first thing about wine when I joined the wine trade either. So uh, there you go. And what decade was that? That was in the uh, late 70s. So almost 40 years ago, Levy. Probably a really big difference for the British trade. In terms of wine, like what people were buying and what, what was... people were buying back then. 
gosh, yeah, yeah. It was before New World Wines had happened, so it was it was mainly France, certainly mainly France, and there again the the very classical areas of France, and Italian wines were just beginning to be sort of quite well known, but they weren't really known for their quality at all. They were wines that were primarily bought and sold on price. Although there was already some inclination of the great potential that a lot of them had, um, but it's been a long, hard struggle to uh, see that potential realised and actually break down the barriers that I think were preventing people from buying them back then. They had a lot of hurdles to jump over Italian wines, and certainly in the UK, it's a very traditional market. What were some of those hurdles? That wine is first and foremost French which we've always believed, I always thought primarily for geographical reasons, it's a short hop over the channel. And there's a a huge history of trade between the UK and France in terms of wine. The old categories, the sort of classic categories, so, you know, sherry was still quite popular and people had still heard of Madeira, but Italy was mainly famous for, I suppose, classic denominations, but all priced at a a level which um, I think probably gave them a very poor image at the time. So it really was about image in a way. Yeah, I think so. Um, But uh, I would also say that back then, um, the quality certainly wasn't what it is now. Um, We all know there are very good reasons for that. So uh, Italy's made huge strides forward in quality over the last 40 years, as we've all seen. And gradually, gradually, the sort of the barriers that have faced them, this sort of reluctance to admit that uh, wine is anything but French on behalf of the English, have been broken down. I think what probably helped that was the arrival of the, the New World Wines, which opened up their sort of eyes to to other possibilities and um, Italy's beginning to find its feet in the marketplace now. So the better ones are arriving at the sort of level that they deserve to in terms of both price and prestige. And yeah, I would say that while there's a a willingness now to experiment on behalf of the British consumer that may not have actually um, been very typical in the past. Um, it's there, but people still tend to revert to the the famous names, you know, Suave, Valpolicella, Chianti, Barolo. They're the ones that still have a solid following. But that's really interesting how, in a way, the new world broke open the possibility of seeing, again, the possibilities in the old world. Yeah, I, I definitely. Um, I, th- I think it's a language thing as much as anything for us. You know, the, the Brits aren't that famous for their familiarity with many other foreign languages. Obviously, they have the language that, like you guys over there, that dominates the world. Um, but yeah, so that was a big help. Um, it was allowing people to see wine for almost the first time uh, from a different place, but using a language that they were at home with. And yeah, wine all of a sudden could be could come from anywhere and still be good. What was your segue into the wine trade? How did that happen for you? Wholly by accident. I was kind of between jobs. I was uh, teaching English as a a foreign language. And uh, between jobs, I was working in a bar, okay? And it's a familiar story. This guy walked in, 
thought I recognized him, but didn't want to make an idiot of myself and say, look, don't I know you from somewhere? Um, but he kept coming in regularly, and um, so I plucked up the courage to ask him, uh, look, don't I know you from somewhere? And he, he, he'd been thinking the same thing, and it turned out that he was at the same university as me at the same time, reading the same subject. It's just that our paths had never crossed, but we'd seen each other. Anyway, we, uh, we used to chat regularly after that, and he understood that I was in a position where I was uh, waiting for a teaching job to come up, um, and I wasn't very happy working in a bar. And he said one day to me, look, we've got a job coming up at our place, um, if you're interested. And it was a job as a cellar boy in a wine shop. And yeah, so that's how I entered the wine trade i used to carry cases of wine around and uh but you worked for odd bins for a long time right that's right i think about five or six years maybe yeah yeah so that's where i grew up in the trade but you'd be surprised the amount of people who these days work in in the british wine trade certainly of my generation who began their time in odd bins it was a great uh source of of, uh, you know, future wine trade people. People drifted in there you know, by chance almost and decided they liked wine and, you know, uh, and they stuck with it just like I did. Because it became a big deal, odd bins, and it Definitely. kind of offered an alternative to the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. Um, you seem to know a lot about odd bins. I'm, I'm impressed. I, I don't know why I know, but I, uh-huh. I think it's just the name has always stood out for me. Sure, sure. It's a, it's a, it was a quirky name at the time. It had a quirky image, and it tended to be staffed by uh, young ex-grads who, uh, like me, didn't, didn't know what they wanted to do with the rest of their life, found wine interesting, got really into it, and... Um, at the time, Odd Bins was, it was a name chosen very deliberately. Um, the company used to buy up Odd Bins of wine from here and there and uh, put them out at really accessible prices. And in parallel with that, they built up a portfolio of really good quality wine as well. So there was always something new. They were very exciting times in the wine trade. So I'm really fortunate in that I joined them when I did. Because it could have been a whole other career for you, really. Like, you could have gone and worked at an entirely different kind of wine store by chance. Absolutely. Serendipity, my friend. Serendipity. But, I mean, you are a um, a smart guy who has maybe an iconoclastic view in the wine trade, and it seems like Odd Bins embraced a lot of those people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've hit the nail on the head. And you guys used to kind of like draw your own signs and have colorful decorations. That's the fella. It was all sort of done by people. It was all done in a a totally chaotic, individual, and fun way. Um, It was way before, you know, the uh, more serried approach of marketing, um, I guess you could say that... um, you know, it certainly predates the idea of marketing. It was all done on an individual, haphazard, and often extremely exciting basis. And it really resonated with the wine fans of the time, you know? Because I think a lot of times when Americans think of the English wine retailer, we think of like leather chairs, of course, cigars, of course. wine lockers, of course, guy with dusty books. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That's what it was like. And then Odbins came along. How did that help you? I guess, in a way, it helped you see a lot of wines that probably you wouldn't have seen any other way, yep. a lot of different appellations. Absolutely. And gave you a lot of freedom to kind of explore. Sure. But are there other ways that it helped you? Like, are there things that it kind of helped shape your outlook on wine or outlook on tasting wine? It allowed me to find my own way in wine. 
in the fustier style to which you were referring, you know, the, the dusty books and the leather chairs, you followed a certain path. And that was the traditional path where wine was French, etc. apart from, of course, sherry and port. And, um, so I could just stand back and look at what was happening and think, well, I kind of like that. I think I might go down that road. So that's what I did. And that's, you know, they were very good for Italian wines, odd bins. They always sort of saw some potential there. And, um, they're the ones that I latched on to. Looking at you and then having you tell me that you're from Manchester, I can see that maybe a working class thing appealed to you, like both in the retail side and in, in Italian wine. Absolutely. You know, the kind of paisano. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, that's what it's like up there. Manchester's an industrial city. Yeah, at the time when I was sort of growing up there, that's the 50s and 60s, it, it wasn't a rich city. Um, it, was, it was pretty working class. And yeah, that, that's always going to show, isn't it? Those are my roots, and I'm very proud of them. So 1990 is an interesting time to write a Barola book because it's sort of in between some other Barola books, sort of a no-man's land of publications. There wasn't a lot happening for English writers about Nebbiolo in 1990, whereas now there's a whole flood of Barola books. Sure. And some of the earlier ones date to the 70s. Like in the 70s, there was Wasserman. And I don't remember anyone writing a book on Barolo. Well, Italy's noble. Oh, the noble. Yeah. Well, the, um, excuse me. Those were tasting notes about a series of wine that the 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 the, the Sheldon and uh, Pauline, because I did uh, I did meet them a couple of times, had written um, mainly that. I wouldn't call that book an in-depth study of Barolo. I'm not challenging its worth, but what it didn't do was what I hope our book did was to look into the sort of background, um, a detailed study of the vineyards, the history behind the wine. Yeah, I, I you know, uh, did you meet Sheldon? No, no, he was dead by the time. Ah, uh, lean, mean tasting machine. I'd see him at Vin Italy, and I'd say, uh, "How many is it today, Shelley?" I'm up to 256, and he'd have his little spittoon with him, his under his... That's what I heard. He would yeah, bring yeah, this spittoon yeah. with him. Like yeah, he yeah, would carry, he'd, he'd carry it with them. Because yeah. at first, when you used to go to Italy back in the 80s, you didn't have spittoons. What do you want a spittoon for? Don't you like the wine? Yeah, but, you know, I'd also like to taste a few others. You know, that was what it was like. And my first Italy was sort of uh, late 80s. Because they were saying that uh, when they originally had been Italy, they didn't put out spittoons. That was like the joke. That's right. Think. Yeah. No, it's true. Do you mean the joke? It's 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 true. I can remember it. Um, do you know Robert Joseph? Yeah. Did he tell you that story? Yeah, that's who told me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Marco Sputiere. Great April Fool, that one. Yeah. So, what were early days of in Italy like? Much much smaller. It was tiny. There was one, uh, one main pavilion, uh, and it was ma mainly Veronese producers, and it, it's just exploded over the course of the decades. Um, almost folkloristic um, members of the Italian wine trade. I remember my first in Italy spending some time with Giacomo Bologna, who I, I sort of met quite a few times and got on very well with, just seeing the way that that guy worked an audience. You know, he was just fantastic he's the only guy i knew who could 
eat a sandwich, drink a glass of wine, smoke a packet of cigarettes, and hold a conversation with 50 people all at the same time. He was unbelievable. What a guy and what a winemaker. He made some splendid wines, some really mole-breaking wines, uh, Giacomo Bologna. So, yeah, I've got great memories of him and the first in Italy. That was a, the stand I kept going back to, go and see Giacomo Bologna. Uh, long after the rest of the show had... Um, had finished his stand was still full of people and the guys the you know the wardens or whatever um they were coming on desperate to get him out of there these were trying to close and he stands still full of people he's still ranting away lighting up another cigarette drinking another bottle of wine eating another sandwich having another conversation so how could you not be drawn to something like that um he was a bit special how did you find yourself in italy what was a segue from working in retail, being a seller guy, to meeting with producers at Vanilli? As a seller boy, I decided for whatever reason I was going to stick with wine. And um, yeah, I wasn't going to be a seller boy all my life, I hoped. Um, so I tried to work my way up the trade. And by that time, um, I had a young... Well, my first child had arrived. And uh, well, I was, you know... I, I needed to take, to take responsibility for a young family. So the only way of doing that was by trying to work my way up the trade. So that's what I did. I chose to do it through Italian wine, first and foremost, for two reasons principally, I think. Um, I always had a bit of an evangelical streak in me. Love pulp bashing the pulpit, you know? So I, like I went on to teach for many years, diploma for the WSET, I really like sharing my enthusiasm with people. Um, not necessarily teaching them, but just saying, look, this is great, try that, wow. And yeah, partly because, well, really because I, I thought there was just enormous potential in Italian wine that people were ignoring. Uh, so at the same sort of time that New World Wines were taking off and why become a new, another New World Wine specialist there? Commercially, it might have made more sense, perhaps, but uh, Italy had got me by the short and curlies by then, so, uh, yeah. What were some of the standout moments with that? What were certain wines that really stood out for you? Almost straight away, Barolo. Um, my first visit to the area was in the early 80s, and I remember going to visit the legendary Giovanni Conterno of Giacomo Conterno, Roberto's dad. Well, he was another amazing guy. Um, I think this was 1982, probably. And in his cellar, which was before he moved to where they are now, further up the road at a place called, I think, if memory serves me right, San Giacomo, I tasted uh, Monfortino 1970, right from the straight from the barrel. It had been for ten years. Um, so how can you not have, uh, do anything but you know really revel in an experience like that? And I suppose that those sort of things stay with you, and uh, they they give you the desire to sort of move on, even when things are difficult. You know, you take inspiration from guys like that, who, uh, who were truly amazing. What was the conversation with Giovanni Conterno like? He was an immensely sort of proud guy, kind of very fierce almost. 
uh, had a face like an eagle, eyes like an eagle. Um, do you like Samuel Beckett? He's got this lovely phrase he uses all the time about piercing blue eyes as cold and unwavering as a gull's. He was like that. If I remember, he did have blue eyes. But he had this wonderful, almost leonine sort of stare. He was quite a character, but very friendly, very keen. But he found it quite hard to express himself in many ways in words. He was a he was a primarily a, a vignaiolo. He loved loved being in the vineyards um, and had this amazing approach to wine, just making it in a wholly traditional fashion, which was, I guess, unique. Probably, it was probably unique then. I, I, I'm guessing that because I hadn't by then had too much experience of what was happening elsewhere, but Barolas had al always had that tradition of, you know, that in that it has developed in its own way at its own pace. Well, it certainly was like that back then. It was uh, fascinating stuff. You could go into cellars and maybe they'll serve you something that's in barrel that's eight years old or that kind of, that was still that era, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, indeed, I mean, you know, he'd happily open bottles as well for you. But he was—he—he'd uh, he'd show you everything he had, and uh, and. You know, but it's—it's it's moments like that, you know, tasting a, a wine from barrel where it's been sitting for ten years, and finding something that is just totally amazing still, even after ten years in great big old wooden barrels, is a, an experience that remains with you. Clearly, yeah, certainly remains with me. I'm sorry I missed that because. How you're describing it is very similar to how Belfrage describes mm, yeah, it. Yeah. So it, it was clearly an emotional experience. Very definitely, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a guy who's uh, I see is very much as mentor Nick Belfrage uh, in the world of the guy. Yeah, his um, his book Life Beyond Lambrusco was was a big influence. Um, I think it said a lot of things that needed saying, and a lot of things. In many ways, that are still true, and it was that was published what nineteen eighty seven something like that around that sort of time, uh, you know. Um, a bit I like to think like Barolo Tar and Roses, a book well ahead of its time. When you published Barolo and Tar and Roses, I assume you, fame and fortune didn't necessarily sweep you away right after. No, I wasn't pestered for the film rights. <laughs> uh, <laughs> didn't manage any T-shirt sales. Um, because you were a little ahead of your time there. Uh, well, thank you for saying so. Um, yeah, they, there was a first print run, which sold up pretty quickly. Um, we were desperate for it not to be reprinted because it was so full of errors. So we bought the uh, rights up with the intention of redoing it properly. Um, and that was, what, 27 years ago. So, yeah, all right. Um, that was you and your co-author, Paul Merritt. That was Paul Merritt and I, yeah. yeah. You had met at Oddbins, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We met through Oddbins, and um, we've been great friends ever since. Uh, I was the best man at his wedding. Um, we're business partners today, so, yeah, good guy. And who was the person that said, bro, let's write a book? Well, that was actually me, but... It was a, a vague idea I had, you know, because I'd always wanted to write a book. And, you know, Paul and I have a, a very close understanding. And uh, it wasn't as though he needed any persuading or if I hadn't suggested it one day, he probably would have the next or something. But How did you go about it? Well, we divided it up between the two of us. You're going to do this part, I'm going to do that part. We went on lots of field research trips to 
find out everything we could. We decided we'd try and make the book as seamless as possible on our editor's advice. So um, to this day, I mean, I like to think I could sort of challenge people and say, look, who wrote that chapter and who wrote that one? It was a work that we undertook together and worked on together very strongly. It was a real team effort. And, uh, yeah, we're obviously very proud of what we did because it was, um, I think I'm right in saying, the first book on the wines of Alba in the English language, a dedicated book only to that uh, subject. Who were some of the other figures that really stood out for you along your visits? Bartolo Mascarello, the guy with the flat cap, the, the socialist. Um, a great guy. He, he was oh, such a twinkle in his eye. Um, he was a real traditional producer, and there was always this kind of rumor that went around that he was so set in his ways that he wouldn't even have a telephone in the winery. If you heard that one before, yeah. Um, how true that is, I don't know. But um, his wines stand out. Uh, other traditional producers as well, of course. Um, I got to know Beppe Rinaldi's dad, Gian Battista, um, who was making very, very traditional wines at the time. But the really interesting thing was that it was at the time when the new guys uh, were coming on, uh, onto the scene, Roberto Vuezio, Enrico Scavino, Elio Altare. So you had two very different camps there. And that was great, great to see just the old and the new and the sort of clash of uh, of uh, mentalities, if you like, um, sparks flew. Because Batista, having escaped from a prisoner of war, was thought to be a somewhat stern man. Um, I found him an incredibly genial bloke. Really, he had this sort of beatific smile on his face. He was almost like a cherub, uh, and very, very gently mannered. Um, yeah, I, I only met him the once. I, I rocked up at the winery one day and tasted some wines with him and met Beppe, his son. And uh, he used to store Barolo, I remember, in two-liter bottles with a screw cap. The Brunate ones, the big ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tasted a lot of wines with him. Um, they were doggedly and determinedly old-fashioned and had all the sort of characteristics that um, the modernists look down on, high and volatile acidity, hints of oxidation, sometimes screamingly high acid and tannins. But nonetheless, they had, they had real soul, real soul, yeah. Fascinating things. And you probably got to meet a, a younger Lorenzo Acamasso. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yes, I'd forgotten all about him. Um, we, we, we went along there one day, and we met his sister, and um, he was supposed to turn up, and she was looking nervously around. He wasn't there, so he was, she was trying very hard to entertain us, and she opened some bottles of wine for us, and uh, she was sort of saying, well, this to me smells of faded rose petals and nervously because she didn't really, she was not feeling at ease because the man wasn't right. And he, anyway, he finally rocked up and uh, we tasted a few wines with him and they were very kind of severe in style. Uh, 
And he was kind of a bit forbidding, a bit of a daunting personality. Um, not dissimilar to Giovanni Contano in many ways, um, a similar sort of basically peasant farmer, uh, very set in his ways. And, uh, yeah, um, for someone used to perhaps, uh, you know, I knew a style of producer because by then the uh, the new newer guys were really coming into their own. It was quite... Uh, Quite a contrast, quite a, a big contrast. There was a, a an enormous gulf in styles back then, absolutely enormous. You really saw the beginning of that. Certainly when I first went in the early 80s, there was nothing like that. It was all old school. Um, and then when we started researching the book, which I think was probably around 1987, that was when the, it was all starting to bubble away and... Uh, uh, I don't know if Roberto Voetti and his brother had built a wall down the middle of the cellar by then, but they possibly had. And um, Domenico Clerico was had just arrived on the scene, and uh, we we actually we had a name for them. Okay, um, we used to refer to them as the Rabid Afri, and this is simply because quite a few of them had perms, Afro hairstyles. Clerico, both Voezio, Alfredo Ruagna as well. So, and they were pretty kind of angry young men, so we refer to that group as the Rabidafri, which sounds Italian, but it's just a sort of a silly word we put together, so it meant sort of angry young men with Afro hairstyles, which is what they, they probably wouldn't thank me for saying that or for reminding me about that. But, uh, and you had Sandroni leaving Marchese de Barolo, starting yeah, his yeah, own. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember his old cellars very, very well. I just, um, I, I'd recognized him. I, I was driving down a little, the sort of the lower road out the center of Barolo, not the top, the lower road, one day to, to go somewhere. And I saw him, and I thought, I reckon that that's Luciano Sandroni. So I stopped and said, look, you're, you're Luciano Sandroni, and I claim my five pounds or whatever. And, um, yeah, we got talking, and he took me to his cellars, and, yeah, yeah I ended up sort of having dinner with him in, in the house. And, uh, yeah, it was great. He was, uh, he's a guy I really admire and, and like a lot. Easy to like, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. He's, he's less forbidding. He's very warm, and, uh, but still very much a Langarolo in character. I don't know if he still smokes Toscani, but he did back in those days. So he's got that, that, that voice, yeah. Did you get a chance to meet the Sobrero of Monprivato and Villero? Absolutely, I did. Violante Sobrero. Um, it was wonderful. He'd actually stopped winemaking by then because uh, he'd not long sold his vineyards to Mauro Mascarello. And we went along to meet him with Mauro. Uh, and what a lovely old guy. He invited us into his house. Um, again, his sister was there, and he opened some wine for us, and we had a, a chat about the old days. And if you uh, if you look in the Barolo book, if you can find a copy, there's a photograph of him standing next to Mauro Mascarello, and for some reason they're both creased up with laughter. We had a great time that day, that's for sure. He opened a few older bottles for us, and uh, yeah, he was he was quite a character, um, you know, very much. Another sort of of those kind of hard-headed peasants in a way, but more genial, more approachable, more willing to sort of give more of himself and share his thoughts and feelings, you know. That would have been sort of a, a golden time to meet uh, Beppe Cola. Yeah, he was quite a guy. Um, uh, 
Yeah, we met him on a number of occasions and his brother, obviously, Tino. Um, this was obviously before Pronotto was sold off to Antinori. I can't remember what year that happened, but it was certainly predates then. And uh, But he was a great help to us. I remember going to the winery there and he's saying, well, it's just out of curiosity. I mean, we all know about Barolo. Let's open a 30-year-old Dolcetto, for example. So he did. And, uh, yeah, we learned a lot from him. And he was very, very frank, very open, and very honest with us. Um, you know, he uh, he admitted that, uh, you know, part way through his winemaking career, he learned there was something called the malolactic fermentation. And uh, he was he didn't try and hide that. And uh, that was a characteristic which at the time perhaps wasn't that common. Uh, a, a lot of Langaroli back then were very closed and, you know, didn't really uh, didn't really want to sort of share too much with people. But he was he was quite the opposite. Alfredo Corrado was a somewhat open guy as well. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, again, a very genial person, you're quite right. Um, I felt back then that his wines were still fairly sort of severe. That's not always a bad thing, but uh, not always that as easy to appreciate as possibly some people felt that they were. Um, but yes, you're quite right. He was a very open and very helpful guy, very considerate and very happy to share experience. You'd probably started to see in significant number people doing single vineyard Barolo sure. by that time. Yeah, absolutely. The crew was the thing. Everyone claims to have done it first. That's what they're like. Probably Pronotto were certainly amongst the first, but there again, Vietti were close as well and an, a whole number of others but yes it was an idea that had taken off by then and I, I think a lot of that was to do with Renato Ratti who uh, I also met on numerous occasions and and thought the world of Renato Ratti was a wonderful guy in fact um, the, we dedicated the book to him which was because um, he died I think just before it was published sadly but he was a great uh, modernizer uh, and I think perhaps doesn't these days get the recognition that he deserves what he did. Um, he was probably the first guy to map out the great areas of Barolo, which everyone knew were there and everyone acknowledged. Um, but he was the first to say, look, you know, this is a concept we can build on and we need to build on it, just as we need to improve our wines and start making more modern wines and like uh, the Cordero di Montezemolo family, he was he was amongst the first to sort of embrace the idea of a more scientific, measured approach with uh, much better uh, winemaking techniques, better cellar husbandry, and a newer, more approachable style, where which showed off Nebbiola's dazzling array of fruit qualities. And then you probably knew Elvio Cagna when he was at Macarini. Definitely, yeah, right? yeah, great guy. Again, beautifully genial, um, a real twinkle in his eye. It was great fun to taste wine with him. And great, the, uh, do you know where the premises was back then? Sort of overlooking what he referred to as a hill of wine. Um, everything happened by gravity right down to the bottom where, you know, it was transported off to wherever it was going. Um, yeah, I remember him very well. Um, glorious sort of 
two Barolos. It was La Serra and Brunate, if I remember rightly, and trying to tell the difference between them. And Yeah, great fun tasting those wines, yeah. Probably a, a time of more access to someone like Bruno Giacoso, who is hard to meet today. Yeah, I've met Bruno Giacoso a few times, of course. And again, you know, with him, you'd he'd take you into the cellar and he'd, he'd let you taste wine from the barrel. And uh, he was very generous. And, and one time we sort of rocked up and... Um, he, for some reason, he wasn't able to see us, and he just said, well, you know, just go into the cellar and help yourself to a few bottles. <laughs> I'll see you next time. <laughs> Again, I, I've not seen Bruno Giacosa for, for, for donkey's years, um, possibly not even since we were researching the book, but, uh, yeah, he was, again, quite a character, very, very straight, very um, seemingly severe, but quite sort of warm-hearted underneath. It seems like you brought that out in a lot of these people, because some of the people that you're talking about as being really warm-hearted people were known to be severe to others. So well, it's because they, you know, it's the only way they were going to get rid of us, you know, because we kept <laughs> pestering them. <laughs> okay, all right. But I mean, did you feel that you were making some connections? Because it kind of, the way you're telling it, sounds like you made some strong connections, like on a personal level. Oh, I like to think so. Um, you know. Um, you know, when I, when I, it's great if I see someone, I, I don't know, Roberto Vuezio these days, you know, it's great. We just sort of, you know, hug each other and start talking about the old days. And uh, I, I won't tell you some of the things he says. Yes, I will, because you can edit this one out if you like. Um, a few years ago when I saw him, I was, uh, I'd not seen him for a few years and we'd sort of, Hugged each other like old friends, and anyway, got talking. And at one point, he was almost creased up with laughter. He's saying, "Do you know, Michael? People pay me a hundred euros a day for a bottle of my wine." And great, <laughs> used to struggle selling it for you know just a couple of quid, but it was lovely to see. He's a lovely guy, Roberto. I really like him. Another person in a very different style of wine who has a kind of very appealing personality like that was Teobardo Capilano. Yeah, know them much less well. Um, I think we visited there once, and I, if I remember rightly, I, I think that his approach to making wine rather was extremely individual um, and difficult for us to understand. But what you've got to remember is that in those days, Serra Lunga was the sort of the forgotten land of Barolo. Um, no one went there. You know, you, you, you weren't even supposed to talk about Serra Lunga because it was a sort of really strange area, these forbidding wines and forbidding people. Um, but yeah, even there, we managed to sort of uh, talk a few of them around and let, let, let us taste their wines. He was one of them, and he was, he was, he was, he was pretty open, yeah, as well. So it must have been interesting to release the book. It comes out in 1990, and then that pretty much that whole decade in terms of the press is really dominated by Tuscany, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it was because of the Super Tuscan movement, and they were making a lot of, uh, a lot of big strides forward. Um, but they were able to do that thanks to you know, people like Antinori because he was a, a massively well-known figure and a massive presence with massive influence. Um, Barolo was much smaller and a bit still very much under the radar. So, um, but, uh, you know, gradually Barolo became better known and more and more people started talking about it and drinking it. And uh, What do you think were some of the key takeaways for you in terms of 
understanding the region and the wines that came through through writing the book? I suppose there's always mist whiplash, isn't there? Um, the tannin in Barolo. It's uh, I think in the book uh, we describe it as a like the wall a marathon runner hits. If you can live through it, you get the high. You know, you, the adrenaline rush kicks in, and I've, that's less true today. Obviously, tannin management in Barolo has changed totally, but back then. Some of the great examples, the really great examples, were fearsomely, awesomely tannic. Uh, and if you could live with it, you could sort of see through to the, you know, the, the great and beautiful purple-tinged horizon beyond, you know. It was, uh, so that, that's something that, it still remains. Nebbiolo is still a tannic variety, but as I said, the tannins are managed much more carefully than, than they were before, which lets... Uh, no, no uh, which lets Nebbiolo show off all those amazing aromas and perfumes that it has. Um, one of the things that I, that really turns me on, or always has, about Barolo, it's one of the very few wines that um, I've ever smelled, which is a bit like walking into a church, smelling incense and old wood. Um, it's a remarkably ethereal experience, and uh, don't get that that often. But you used to get it still in aged Barolo. Um, was one I, I tried once, which was about forty years old. Which was it really was like walking inside a, a church and this amazing sense of it, smell of incense, uh, just slowly creeping up the nostrils. It was a great experience. Yeah, we've talked a lot about people and personalities, yeah, yeah. but when I read a lot of your writing, a lot of it is about the liquid. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's it's the liquid that, that, that counts at the end of the day, obviously. And uh, if I talk a lot about the personalities, it's because I think, you know, you do see the personality of a winemaker in a, in a, in a wine, undoubtedly. So, yeah, I, I write about a lot about the liquid, and really that's because... Um, People are, are kind enough to invite me to tastings and want to read what I think about the wines themselves. So, of course, you've got to talk about those rather than the uh, characters behind them. And um, I find the language of wine ever so interesting. It's about trying not to be too technical, but yet not banal either, to try and find a level uh, and to try and find the right vocabulary. Um, these days, I think the tendency is to try and describe wines in terms of almost a chemical analysis. People will talk about terpenes and benzenoids. Um, and that's great, um, because obviously, and um, we have to understand what these things come from, but I just wonder how much the consumer is interested in that and ultimately whether it really tells him that much about a wine because these particular compounds are compounds that all wines have in common and I try and I, I like the language of wine to try and distinguish between one wine and another and that's got to have some emotional content to be able to do that so I, I try and retain 
a degree of emotion in my in my tasting notes because otherwise I think they kind of be a bit kind of bland and neutral, like exactly like the sort of wine that people don't like, you know. So you have to give color, uh, otherwise the uh, the tasting note is, is is almost irrelevant. On the other hand, um, I think tasting notes can become too important because they're too fleeting because wine changes every day and therefore it's just it's just an, an instantaneous thing so i don't set great store by tasting notes but descriptions of what the flavors and aromas of particular varieties are yes they're very individual which is where the more technical terms are helpful but again they have to have color in order for people to understand and appreciate them properly i think I mean, I think you're a good writer, and I think that you'd rather not bore people. Oh, I, 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 I like words, yeah, yeah. So, um, and yeah, it's far too easy um, if you don't write what you should be writing. Um, the reader will quite rightly <laughs> shut the book, turn over the page. So, yes, you have to keep people's attention, and therefore, you know, it's important the color aspect. Here, colorful phrasing is 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 extremely important but also because i think tasting notes should sort of respect the wine itself so therefore you know you have to first of all understand why a wine is a good example of its type to do that you have to know it's what it's tipichita is really all about and then you have to recognize that and hopefully transmit something of it so that other people can come closer to you know understanding understanding those characteristics and what makes that wine distinct from others you know the title of the book that you wrote was called barolo tar and roses sure. and that's kind of a shorthand for what barolo tastes like it was a phrase that i'm pretty certain paul coined um I wanted to call the book Lifting the Fog because <laughs> Nebbiolo the, was the grape of the fog and I wanted the fog to be lifted so everyone could see what was going on and see clearly now and now we understand Barolo. The editor wasn't having any of that. Uh, so Paul came up with Tar and Roses. Thank God, thank God he did, yeah. Um, and yes, certainly, um, it reflects what the wines tasted like but it also colored the argument of you know the old school and <laughs> who were making you know the sort of wines they were making and the and the new style the sort of the roses the sort of fresher clearer uh, style of the of the more modern producers so it was a, a mixture of all those things and it's a phrase that i think really worked are there people that you've really admired in, in terms of writers wine writers number one for me is burton anderson um he wrote so beautifully um and again in this really engaging style which was in no way patronizing and that's so important in the wine trade um don't forget i i came from a time when the traditional wine trade was extremely patronizing and um you know they kind of looked down their noses and everything was you know in a language that they alone could understand and Burton Anderson just spoke in a clear, beautifully clear voice. I loved the way he wrote. I love his engaging style. And 
that book really turned me on to uh, Italian wine, big style. I think it's probably fair to say it's the best book on wine I've ever read. Simple as that. I always wanted to have him on a show because I like the book a lot too. Mm. But I think in a way, uh, Italian wine's been uh, lucky to have some very smart, good writers. Yeah, Belfridge is another one. Very different style to, to Burton. Um, Burton's was very clear and very uh, very engaging. Um, you really kind of quite enveloping. You just kind of he really just took you into the world and you could sort of see it and he was a kind of a filter if you like um for what was good about italian wine nick's style was much more combative and engaging he was facing issues and problems and he needed to sort of really confront that so it's a confrontational style whereas burns was kind of very laid back and gentle and inviting Belfords could really turn a phrase. Yeah, yeah. He could certainly coin a phrase, Nick. There's no doubt about that. Um, very succinct guy. Very succinct. So subsequently, yes. you know, a lot's happened. Big run of strong vintages for sure. Barolo. Sure. Maybe less interest in certain markets for Bordeaux and a uh-huh. turning to Barolo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some acknowledgement uh, from the producers themselves about tannin management or ripeness. Mm-hmm. And the wines have really taken up a, a mantle for great wines of Italy. So has anything surprised you between when you wrote that book and now about what's happened with Pimonte and Barolo? Yeah, the, the, um, the ability to adapt. It, well, it's a lesson they've learned from. The potential is clearly already there. And if anything surprises me, it is that that potential has been realized as quickly as it has. Um, I think climate change is probably a factor. Um, as you rightly identify, there's been a run of really good vintages. I wrote an article for Decanter not long ago called The Golden Age of Barolo. Uh, and it was, because there was a whole run of vintages of really great years and the wines. There used to be an average of, say, three great years in 10. Now, the fact that that has change isn't just down to better winemaking etc and better better vineyard practice above all i have to say something else has happened that has to be put down to climate change and uh, yeah that's what that's one of the reasons i think burrows had a, a real helping hand from that it's happened at the right time for them so you've really specialized in multiple parts of northern italy in your trade career and then also in your writing Moving somewhat quite a bit forward, Mm -hmm. you're about to come up with a book about Amarone and Suave. Sure. So another great wine of northern Italy. Yep. And um, how did that get started and and what was going on to lead to that? There's a story behind this, of course. And um, my first ever visit to an Italian winery was here in Verona and in Valpolicella in particular. As we've seen now, so that's 35 years ago. I've been back almost every year, um, not only for Vin Italy, but to visit wineries. So I've got an awful lot of uh, experience in uh, the wines of Verona. And um, I've written countless articles for Decanter on those wines. So given that knowledge, I guess, that experience that I've accrued over all this time, 
it seems like I should write a book on the subject because I really loved writing Barol Tal and Roses. I really like writing. And um, for one reason or another, you know, there, there I was dormant for 25 years in terms of actually writing a book. And it's the right time in the sense that, you know, Amarone is, well, we've seen the boom in Amarone over the last couple of decades. And again, we've got a, sim- a parallel story, if you like, to Barolo. Suave and Valpolicella these days are just glorious wines. Um, again, they suffer from such a, or they suffered rather from such a, a poor image of quality, which was created really in the 60s and 70s when they were just commodity products. These days, the real true identity of these wines is being nailed like it's never been nailed before. And I'm just so excited about what is going on in the area. And I, I want to share that with, with people. And uh, so that's why I decided to, to write a book on the region. Well, I'm happy that you wrote it. And it's also an area that I know much less about than uh, the Pimante. So if I were getting into learning more about some of the real classic but also important wines of the Veneto, which mm. is what you're writing about, yeah. what should I know about Suave and Amarone just to set the stage? Geographically speaking, they're the wines that are produced in the um, foothills of the Lassini Mountains, which is quite an amazing place. It's this vast cast plateau, some all basically sort of limestone-based, which is extremely old. It's one of the oldest sort of territories around. It was uh, formed millions and millions of of years ago. Uh, And in addition to that, you have part of the area, the eastern part of the area, particularly around Suave, where the soil is all volcanic. There's a a trio of volcanoes, uh, extinct volcanoes. I hope they're extinct anyway. Um, uh, Right at the eastern edge of the zone, uh, and they have contributed a lot towards the sort of the Suave territory. So you've got a kind of mix of these territories in the middle and bits of sort of outlying volcanic activity in the Valpolicella zone as well. So you've got a mix of two really interesting soil types, and you've got, again, great varieties that you don't see anywhere else. And one of the things you wrote about for Decanter was more production in Amarone than was true in the 60s and the expansion yeah. of the zone in 68. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's a big factor. Um, Amarone, you know, people see it as part of the great triumvirate of fine Italian reds along with Barolo and Brunello. In fact, um, Amarone as such didn't exist until 60 years ago that recently so in a way you can say that it is still defining an identity for itself so that's why it's a really exciting time to look at amarone in fact the roots go back rather further than that to uh, i suppose the really historic wine of the area which is recciotto the sweet wine made from semi-dried grapes which has a history dating back to pre-roman times 2,000 years ago, people were drinking sort of, you know, this wine called Vino Rettico, which was made from semi-dried grapes, and the evidence exists to show to show that that happened. So uh, it's a wine with an incredible patrimony, stretching back a couple of thousand years. Air-drying grapes seems like a real Italian specialty because it's a real Roman specialty, right? 
I think the orig origins of it are, in, in fact, in Carthage, I believe, North Africa. And uh, gradually it sort of moved north. And traditionally it was used to produce uh, so-called raisin wines, um, which were sort of sweet and quite stable because of the high sugar content. And it all sort of morphed off in different directions into its own identities in various places. But it's always been here in Verona that I, I think is the real center of um, what people refer to as a passimento, which is the drying of, of grapes following the harvest. Um, it's taken its own identity here. Um, originally, the wines were made into sort of sweet reds and sweet rights, but this newer style has evolved, and with it uh, have come new shoots like Ripasso, which is again has a quite a long peasant tradition, but has only been kind of recognized as a winemaking technique in its own right sort of fairly recently so the area despite its history is still full of innovation so there's so much so much happening still i think we've all encountered sweet wines that have been air dried you sure. know a pesito wine but a more or less dry red wine mm -hmm. that's thought of as one of the classic dry wines of italy that it's also air dried Yes, there are examples. I mean, you could talk about Schiopatino or something, sure. you know, but there's not so many, right? No, here it's done uh, uh, on a big scale. I mean, these days, uh, I think there's been another increase of about 10 or 15% of the amount of Amarone produced in the latest vintage. So it's, it's close, up to close to... 15 and a half million bottles now, um, which is a, a huge rise from 20 years ago. So it's a wine that's recently arrived, which is why it's kind of suggested that almost it's still identifying its, uh, or it's still finding its own feet and really making its uh, true identity known. A lot of uh, Amarone that you see in Iran has got a high residual sugar content, which I think... It's a bit of a double-edged sword, really. It makes it very approachable and very attractive, but um, it makes the wine more difficult to match with food because we all know what sugar does to food. Um, it's still there's still some styles like that. Some people are still making a are, are making a more traditional and drier style. So it's it's not exactly reinventing itself, but it's it's sort of forging an identity, and that's great with Italy, isn't it? But even in the category, there's a lot of difference. And what I've discovered... Amarone you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Even tooling around, you know, I've just discovered that, oh, you know, Corvina looks a lot different than Corvenone sure. and that kind of thing. Sure. And, and then the sweetness levels do vary a lot. Of and course. there's a difference between, you know, some of the classic like Negrar kind of zone mm -hmm. and then yeah. something closer into the Suave zone. Sure, so sure. what are some things that I should know as a consumer to sort of navigate those... I like to think that the more the information that is available about a region, the easier it becomes to understand. Um, so, you know, somewhere like Burgundy is great because the, the great terroirs are mapped out, the best vineyards are all clearly defined. That's happening now in the area. You, you're probably aware that in Suave they have this sort of uh, the Zonazione project completed and they have all the vineyards mapped out and they understand what the different aspects, soil types, um, etc., make up the great 
vineyards of Suave. Similar things are happening in Valpolicella. So Valpolicella, if you, if you take sort of classical through to the um, Valpolicella Est, where it verges with Suave, you've got the influence of uh, Lake Garda, which is just to the west of the um, most westerly valley of the of Classico, which is really Sant'Ambrogio of, of, of Fumane, uh, and the effect of the climate there, which sort of diminishes as the further east you go, so slightly cooler growing conditions over in the west, in the uh, high valleys of the Classico zone, leading to a much riper and richer style of Valpolicella, probably a more structured style the further east you go towards Suave, and everything in between. You do see notable differences, I would suggest, between the wines of Fumane, the wines of Marano, and the wines of Nagra. And what would those be? I mean, if I were trying to know it better. Fumane uh, has a sort of quite a spicy style, um, which I really like. It's quite sort of aromatic, good acidity. There. Um, it's cooler there because of the uh, influence of Lake Garda, just around the corner, if you like. Marano, think cherries. This is cherry heaven. The wines look as if they're made from cherries. It's, they're, they're beautiful wines. They're just brimming over with this just delightful cherry fruit. Um, and further over to the east, you've got Nagra, which is the broadest and longest of the three valleys, where the wines have a little more structure and color as the sort of climate kind of warms up a bit. So, so what about the grape varieties for Valpicella and Amarone? There's um, a classic four. The main one is, is Corvina, which um, a lot of the Veronese series are kind of Pinot Noir, beautiful perfumes, but not sort of tremendous amount of structure. Um, Corvinone is another one. Um, used to be thought of as belonging to the same family because you can see the, the names are very similar. Uh, so it's a bit of a controversial one. Some people really rate it, others less so. It has a peculiar habit of... The grapes not uh, ripening homogeneously, so inside a bunch of ripening grapes, some will still be green. So it has mm, there are things that need sorting out. With it. Um, Rondinella, which is the kind of real workhorse grape, it's a reliable one and it's perhaps not as fine as the other two, but it's climatically given where Verona is, um, it's not always possible to ripen the grapes properly so rondinella is a, a good reliable sort of sturdy grape which is quite resistant to uh, all sorts of maladies and, and a fourth one which um used to be in danger of almost dying out which is called molinara now molinara uh, has become very unfashionable because it's, it produces a very very pale colored one almost like a rosé and it was mm, used to be quite a, uh, in fact, I think, yes, it used to be written into the discipline that it ha the wine had to contain a certain proportion of Molinara because historically it always had done, but not so long ago it was actually taken out as a an obligatory variety. You can still use it, um, but it, it just became a bit unfashionable, which is a real shame. It's, only, it's such an interesting variety. Um, Colour isn't always a big deal for me. I don't mind, uh, well, obviously, Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo's not purple or black. It's a strange, weird, tawny colour. Um, Molinara uh, makes a very pale coloured wine, but it's got just amazing sapidity with it. It's saline. 
it's almost it's not like drinking salt water that's not what i'm saying but it has this wonderfully kind of salty minerally quality to it that um works really well in, in a blend with the others so those are the four major varieties and there's quite a few others as well but do you want me to go into those? Well, Ocelletta is becoming more well, important. Ocelletta right? replaced probably Molinara, really, because it has everything that Molinara doesn't. It has lots of color, lots of structure, and lots of tannin. Um, it's present in a small uh, percentage in, in some of the red wines of the of the Veneto, but it's a, a variety that doesn't really do well in the apacimento process, as you probably know. Um, it's an incredibly small berry, really big uh, pip, and really thick skin. There's hardly any, hardly any pulp there at all. So if you dry it, there's nothing left. So it probably doesn't work in the apacimento process uh, very well. But what it does is tend to give a little more structure and color to Valpolicella, the wine made from fresh grapes. So it's mainly used in that context. And then what about trying to use the different levels at the table? I mean, when you're opening a bottle of Valapicella versus Rapasso versus Amarone mm. that might have a different level of sweetness, what are you thinking about eating with that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. It's a brilliant question. I, in, in fact, Valpolicella is the great uh, food wine. It's, it's, a, it's such an undervalued, underrated wine. It's um, my, my favorite everyday red. I'd soon drink Valpolicella with, uh, you know, the, the most other things. It's so digestible. It's so elegant. It's so nervy. Um, it's not a big blockbuster. Ripasso is obviously a much bigger wine with usually a higher sugar content because Valpolicella, the, the, the uh, sort of simpler level, tends to be sort of very dry, you know, probably two grams per liter of sugar. With Ripasso, a lot of people go up to as far as between 5 and 10. So you've got much softer, rounder, slightly sweeter style, which a lot of people like, um, which obviously you'd, you'd marry with much richer richer dishes than you would Valpolicella. Amarone traditionally is a wine that's in here in Veroni was drunk outside of meals because of its huge alcohol content um, and its seeming sweetness. Traditional Amarone depends not on sugar, for its apparent sweetness, but on the high glycerin content, which comes about through the apacimento process. And indeed, if you talk to someone like Sandro Boschini of Marzi, because of the presence of a little bit of noble rot. Okay, some people are totally anti-rot in the apacimento process. Other people embrace it. Um, it defines the more traditional style of Amarone. But a wine with that amount of residuals, sugar in some cases, or sweetness in the case of the more traditional style, and alcohol is a real struggle to match with food. Um, I personally think it's great with kind of braised meats, meats that have been cooked for a long, long time, where the sugars in the meat sort of caramelize, goes really well with that. So big, rich flavors. A lot of people like it with game. Amarone for me is best with a piece of cheese, you know. That's when Amarone is at its absolute magical best. You know, you mentioned traditional and you mentioned the presence of botrytis at mm -hmm. times. And that's something I associate with not always super consistent, you know, because it's harder every year to predict when you're going to have botrytis. And then of course, at the same time, when I visited producers now, you know, they show me the humidity controlled drying room mm -hmm. and how the temperature is controlled and the, uh, the windows open at the right time by mm -hmm. computer and things like yes. that. And so has there been a shift in 
the consistency of what's possible year to year for these kind of wines? Oh, very, very definitely. Uh, I, I think you, know, you, you have to sort of probably refer to Franco Allegrini as the guy behind the, uh, the new style of Apacimento. And he'll tell you stories about, you know, he was just so fed up of losing half his crop to botrytis during the Apacimento process that he and a number of other producers banded together to fund some research with a... I think it was the University of Bologna, if I'm not much mistaken. And uh, the new style of Apacimento was born. And that pretty much, as long as the uh, you know initial fruit going into drying is in good nick, it will come out the other end in, in very good nick as well. Something that you can never, ever uh, guarantee with the more traditional style because it depended on ambient temperature conditions during you know, the autumn into the winter and and uh yeah those are those are almost impossible so it used to be quite a common thing that the crop would be ruined uh just because uh you know high humidity and um wild swings of temperature variation would um you know encourage the development of of botrytis it's there in the grapes already as you probably know it's just that the more traditional style permits or allows it to sort of not develop so that it effloresces, but it remains within the grapes but contained within the skins. That's why having, a, you know, the apacimento process is so delicate because the main grape varieties do not have thick skins. They're quite thin-skinned. So you have to make sure the grapes are absolutely perfect without any kind of uh, lesion or anything in it if you dry them uh, by the traditional method because the, uh, the spores are already under the skins. They're there, they're present. So you have to just make sure that they, the conditions do not pertain that encourages that mold to develop further so it stays inside the grapes. And that's where the glycerin comes from that is traditionally in Amarone. Um, some people, as I said, avoid it at all costs and um, because, you know, it can ruin a crop so easily. But it does lead to, lead to a different style. The uh, Apacimento wines that are made in the more modern style, I suppose, are um, a little more structured, a little deeper in colour, because botrytis affects colour above all. It destroys anthocyanins as well as leading to oxidative aromas, etc. So it's a sort of fresher, more fruitive, more muscular, probably more powerful style, whereas the sort of classic traditional amarones are more ethereal, more fragrant tend to sort of uh, produce tertiary aromas more quickly. So they age, in fact, they actually age really quite well, some of them. Um, but, you know, isn't that one of the beauties of wine? You know, things happen. It seems like they shouldn't happen, but they do. You mentioned earlier Monfortino and tasting that with yeah. Giovanni Conterno. Absolutely. For me, when we talk about the Veneto, the cognate of that would have been tasting with Beppe Quintarelli. Oh, yeah, Beppe, yeah. Um, what a great guy. He was a, a saintly figure who was just so, so charming and, um, so willing to share with you. Um, I remember once that, well, I think the first time I went to see him, we were sitting in his old cellar and very different from the way the winery is today. The old barrels and the demijohns and, uh, everything like that. And, uh, I, I asked Pepe, um, uh, I, I don't, don't, where, where'd you bottle the wines? I can't see a bottling wine. He picked up a rubber tube, put it in his mouth and said, I am the bottling wine. So, um, yeah, 
he never used to analyze his wines or anything. He would just rely on his palate as an experience. And, and I think it was um, Celestino Gaspari, if I'm not mistaken, who managed to sort of persuade Beppe that they were best leaving the bottle to someone else. And they, they got a, a, an outside bottler in to actually sort of do it properly, I, to, to do anal, analyses of the wines before they were bottled to make sure that there were no yeasts left, that the sugars were where they should be, due to the acid and the um, uh, alcohol level. So it, what it did make was Quintarelli's wine far more reliable than they used to, uh, than they used to be. You know, there are some producers of Amarone that also make Suave, that Absolutely, are in yeah. the suave zone, they sort of That's overlap right. that way. That's true. Um, the two zones do actually overlap for for quite a, a chunk um, between really the valleys of Mezzani di Sotto, uh, even as far not not many people know this um, as a place called Montecchia di Crozala, um, which is actually to the east of Suave Classico. And you think Valpolicella stops and then Suave begins, although they do overlap slightly. In fact, there's a, it's just due down to the sort of the geography and the way the, the uh, different municipalities are, are mapped out. But um, there are parts of the, uh, the Veronese territory that are common to both. Quite a lot of people own territory in both. The tendency over the last couple of decades has been for first grows in the Suave zone to buy into Valpolicella and and now sort of some of the classical producers in Valpolicella itself are buying into the uh, so-called extended zone um, uh, Valpolicella Est. But Suave is, uh, yeah, the, the, the two territories have a lot in common, but when you get into Suave, you see the influence of, of the volcano uh, and all of a sudden the red varieties are left behind and the great grapes of Suave uh, take over. Would you like me to talk about the grapes of Suave? Well, yeah, and one of the things you mentioned in one of your decanter pieces is that people are using less international grape varieties in mm -hmm. the blend in favor of indigenous, indigenous ones. ones with the Garganica. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a time when... The whole world was planting Chardonnay, yeah? Uh, and everyone got, got in the act because it was seen as what the uh, French refer to as a séparage améliorateur, i.e. it was capable of, you know, giving character to wines that otherwise might have liked some. Um, but it wasn't the solution. The two grapes behind Suave are just so good that there's no real need for Chardonnay, although it's still allowed in the blend by law and a number of producers still use it, and it actually works quite well when it's handled carefully, and, and it doesn't actually dominate Garganega, which is the principal grape behind Suave, and in many cases, the only grape used in Suave. Um, a lot of Suave these days is 100% varietal uh, Garganega. The other grape variety is Trebbiano di Suave, which I'm sure you uh, know about. It's, it's in fact the same grape variety as Verdicchio from the Marche, which we all know how good Verdicchio is. Uh, so it's a bit of a surprise that in many ways that Trebbiano di Suave has died out, but I think there's lots of interesting reasons for that. Um, it all dates back to kind of phylloxera and in particular the Apassimento process. Trebbiano di Suave doesn't do well in a Passimento. It has very compact bunches. 
Garganion has loosely clustered bunches and is easier, therefore, able to resist rot during the passimento process. So Trebbiano di Suave will, uh, will come again, I'm sure of it, and a number of people are making some really interesting varietal Trebbiano di Suave wines, and even now, some of the top Suaves have a proportion of Trebbiano di Suave, which is allowed by law to, I, I think, 30%. You can use up to 30% of Trebbiano di Suave, but most Suave these days is 100% Garganica. And talking about what you can or maybe won't do is the use of oak seems to really vary with the Suave. Uh, yes, um, it's handled so much more carefully than it used to be, you know, almost went hand in hand with Chardonnay, didn't it? Chardonnay and Barrique strolling hand in hand around the sort of wine streets of the world and dominating everything. Um, yeah, there was a, a sort of a rush of uh, enthusiasm, if you like, for barriques at the beginning and the sort of toasty vanilla quality, but that fairly quickly passed because it just it just covered what Garganiga had to offer. Um, there's a bit of a return to oak in certain styles of Suave. I think Suave these days has, has three styles, um, all of which are really interesting. You have the kind of modern style, which is sort of low fermentation uh, temperatures, all stainless steel, no mallow, and, uh, you know, a reasonable sort of aging on the fine leaves. And these wines are just... Garganiga for me, it's it's got so, really interesting fruit characters. The smell of Garganiga for me. Do you know? Do you know the russet apple? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it almost tastes like a cross between a pear and a, an apple. Yeah. That that's the main fruit component by behind Garganiga for me. And then it's got all these cit citrus inflections. Smells of mandarin zest, preserved lemons, and it's quite floral as well. So it's a really when people bring those sort of aromas out in this young sort of style of suave, it's amazing. And the wines are so incredibly fresh. Uh, and that style even surprisingly perhaps can age quite well. Um, uh, I, I've tasted wines about 15 years old made in that wine, and they're still incredibly fresh. That's one style of suave. There's the more traditional style of suave, which is fermented in oak, uh, but large old oak, uh, and that's worth ageing uh, as well. Quite a, a much much of a richer style. And there's this sort of third style em emerging, which uh, a few people are doing, and it's really quite interesting, which is, you know, again, fermenting in stainless steel at low temperatures, but ageing the wine for anything between about 12 and 18 months on the fine lees. So if you like, you know, it's where yeast autolysis comes in. And it makes a lot of sense to do this. It's what champagnes are all about, obviously. But that's bringing out some really interesting flavours in a new style of Suave. The best thing of all about Suave, it's ridiculously undervalued. It's such a great price. Quality price ratio is unbelievable. Uh, and I can't. I, you know, we should be drinking more of it because it's such a bargain, given those sort of three different exciting styles and expression, interpretations of the great varieties that they have. And you think it's undervalued because of that kind of image from the 70s? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, as you probably know, you, well, you, don't need, you don't need me to tell you that um, in, I think it was the 70s, it became the biggest selling wine in the States, uh, biggest selling Italian wine, it overtook Chianti for a while. 
Uh, and that was suave at a, should we say, a certain level, um, where I don't think quality was the first thing in the producers' minds, but that's there are very good reasons for that, historical reasons, economic reasons. Italy after the war was in an economic... You know, it was a, an economic fallout area. You know, there was uh, people needed money, um, and they would do anything to get it because you know they, they had to survive. Um, Swabi was invented and sold for very low prices, and uh, yeah, um, that unfortunately set a, a precedent which the wine I think is still trying to live down. And this is the point that Amarone is there to give Valpolicella a helping hand. Okay, it's a great wine, so people have certain expectations for. Valpolicella, but Suave still has a bit of an image problem, and it's that's why we should embrace it now, because it's never going to be this good uh, value again, I don't think. Michael Garner has been attracted to wines that have had an image problem over 40 years following Italian wine, and he's found some good discoveries along the way. Thank you very much for being here today. My great pleasure, Levy. Thank you for inviting me. Michael Garner of Barolo Tar and Roses, and also the forthcoming Amaroni and the Fine Wines of Verona. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.